Welcome to Article One, a show about lawmakers, legislating, and the politics that make Congress work. My name's Molly Hooper, longtime Capitol Hill reporter here, and I'm taking you off camera beyond the halls of Congress to hear my one-on-one conversations with Democrats and Republicans in the Senate, the House, and behind the scenes. Today's episode comes at a trying time for the Article One branch of government. After an unprecedented attack desecrated its hallowed home, the U.S. Capitol building, the most impressive, august, and inspiring structure that scores of people, myself included, have been privileged to call the office. My guest today is Terrence Gaynor, the former top cop on Capitol Hill. He led the Capitol Police Force for over a decade as chief of police and then as Senate Sergeant-at-Arms. In this discussion, Gaynor shares his informed insights on the mob assault, the Capitol Police reaction, and the best way to get answers to tough questions and ultimately solutions so that it never happens again. He also shares how his former colleagues are coping in the aftermath of the attack and reminds listeners that everybody who lived through the assault, staffers, lawmakers, police, young and experienced, will face PTSD. It is real. But he reminds us that though the Capitol was attacked, It remains standing strong, and the business of democracy continues. If you enjoy what you hear, please share Article One with a friend or colleague and leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on to the conversation. How are you? How have you been? I've been better. How are things up at the Capitol right now? Actually, I haven't been up there since Wednesday, but I, from the people I'm talking to, there's a lot of people that are shaken. There are a lot of people that are concerned. Well, I would imagine because having gone through some other threats up there, I know how it was serving to the staff. And, and uh, this is obviously far worse than the PTSD. Who knows how the lasting impact of that will be? The whole situation is just so sad. You have a long history in law enforcement. Let me just lay out for our listeners. I met you in about 2002 when you'd become Capitol Hill police chief, and you were in that role for four years, then became the Senate sergeant at arms. So essentially, you were the boss of your former position. You have a few decades with the Chicago Police Department, so you are no stranger to law enforcement and have served in a lot of different capacities. What was your initial reaction to those scenes that were unfolding on Capitol Hill, not necessarily from an emotional perspective, but from a command perspective? From a command perspective, as they were going up the stairs, uh, whether it was on the East Front or the attack on the West Front trying to get onto the inauguration stands, I never thought they could get anywhere close to the windows or the doors. And uh, it was pretty clear even then in the first 15, 20 minutes of this, that the uh, it appeared we were going to be outmanned. And I, when I say we, I, I still kind of consider myself part of that team, having had the good fortune of uh, hiring many, promoting some, uh, and being around them. So it, it was very professionally personal. When you're in that position and you see that you're going to be outmanned tactically, because not only have you been in the law enforcement side of things, you also served in the military. Tactically, at that point, When you're in a defensive position, clearly with 1,400 some odd Capitol officers up up on Capitol Hill, up against something like 8,000, where do you deploy your resources? Where would you have deployed your resources? Would you have done anything differently than former Chief Sund at that moment in those circumstances? Well, first, let me tell you something. Uh, Steve Sund is a longtime professional friend of mine. He was my chief of staff when I was with the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, a good man. I was tickled pink when he was hired. I think he's a great guy who ended up in a very tough situation. At that particular moment, now that you're in the middle of the battle and you're being outnumbered, you really had to call in all available police forces. And anybody like you who've been around law enforcement in the greater area, uh, there's a signal called a 1033. And when you put a 1033 in, if you haven't prearranged 
to have forces on standby or nearby. You ex expect everybody to start closing in. So what we don't know now is what the uh, police command center of uh, the Capitol Police or the Metro Police or the Joint Command Center, assuming it was operational with Secret Service and FBI, who they were calling in. By then, you just needed pure, quick reinforcements. The ideal situation, Molly, was reading the intelligence correctly and having enough forces, visible reserve forces, and then having to adjust as you watch the, the uh, president's uh, group down by the White House so that you would have probably, they would have had people in the crowd. I mean, that, that wouldn't be a secret and you'd be getting information. So it was really an, an ongoing judgment. So it's not just what you figured out the night before or at eight in the morning, you'd be watching things unfold and calling people. There's a lot to learn about what went right and what went wrong. So, so one thing that I've I've noticed, you know, getting to know Capitol Hill police, the rank and file, they spend a lot of time um, on their breaks, some folks up in the, the press galleries because there was extra room. And, you know, you just get to know people. One of the gripes, and obviously this is from, like I said, a rank and file level, is that the interoperability between the Metropolitan Police Department and Capitol Police, even the Capitol Police at the Supreme Court, their radios, they aren't using the same radios. And it's difficult to communicate with those departments. What's your assessment of the interoperability, how quickly that 1033 could go out and get folks up to Capitol Hill? Well, because of the command center systems, I think it's a lot easier than it was in 9-11. So everybody has continued to try to have radios that work together. But frankly, each officer on the street doesn't need to have reached to all other officers in all other jurisdictions. Uh, that's why you have command functions. So with a group of officers, you're going to have a sergeant and then a few sergeants, a lieutenant and captain and inspectors. And up on the hill, given the amount of camera coverage that you have, the command center that was uh, largely built and expanded after 9-11, when I was the chief, was set up not only to have a complete view of the various camera systems, but also have spots for members of other police departments. So a traditional event, uh, let's use the inauguration coming up, uh, the Capitol Police would send an officer down to the Metropolitan Police Command Center. You'd also have a senior person down at the Joint Command Center run by all the federal agencies. And you would have a Metropolitan Police uh, Command official up in the uh, Capitol Police Command Center. So they're watching the same thing. They're listening to the activity in every each each of those other command centers. And they're personally going back to their home agency, plus the uh, person who's command in command at the command center can pick up a certain number of phones and have a direct link to the other agency. So I, I really think you do have good communication. Okay. But listen, trying to get another three or four or five or 600 officers coming up there two at a time in a, a police car is not ideal. You can't move people that way. The traffic would have been blocked. So the ideal way, obviously, is uh, have officers and CDU, the civil disturbance units, on standby nearby where they can respond. And, and okay. if it's going, and, and depending on the size, you could have the military there. But the National Guard, the citizen soldiers, are not set up to do that type of uh, combat uh, uh, in the, uh, that the police department and various police departments would. And you mean the civil disturbance unit, because I, I know that um, I have friends in other police departments who it seems like every month they were doing civil disturbance training, going to like old malls and having to actually practice how to deal with those kind of disturbances. So you're saying that the National Guard isn't necessarily trained in tactics like that? Well, some National Guard units are like you see some 16,000 men and women up there from the armed forces. So there'll be different units with different capacities. Generally, in the District of Columbia, a National Guard unit is used for support of policing, intersection control, uh, maybe bringing supplies, uh, medical, medical facilities. But there's a, a well-trained military. People listen to combat all over, over the, uh, the globe. So they have the ability but those generally are not used in uh, uh, civil disturbance activities unless you're going to see the type of insurrection you have and you could have had, had them there and they would have been armed, they could have been armed, they would have had the mission orders and had the interoperability of command and control through the police department. The more we're learning about this, the more 
scary it it feels because every day and th- and this is something i want to ask you about in a second just about how massive this investigation is into all these individuals who participated in this it, i sort of question the logic of filming yourself doing breaking the law but that helps the the law enforcement i guess but these homemade bombs and and explosive devices that were found up around capitol hill what does that say in terms of the prepared nature of some of this? Well, as uh, Chief Sun said, uh, that he felt they may have been used as, uh, to divert some of the resources of the Metropolitan Police Department and, or the FBI or the Secret Service was in the area. So it does tell you about the threat level and the seriousness of these groups. So the more threats you have operating at the same time in different areas of the Capitol Hill, the greater you are stretched. There's there's no doubt about it. Give me your perspective. How massive is this investigation? Tell me a little bit about how quickly the authorities are going out and actually getting some of these people who, who are instigators, it seems, of this siege of the Capitol. Well, the uh, under the lead of the FBI, along with agents from other federal agencies in the Capitol Police are doing a wonderful job. And when you see that they've had thousands of tips come in and how quickly they've been rounding these people up around the country, that's very positive. And it's consistent with, uh, you know, people asking the question, why weren't more people arrested as they were leaving the building? Well, there's a couple of downsides to that. It's very labor intensive to do that, but you're also trying to get as many people out of there as quick as you can and the number of people you would need to, to clear them. But again, given the pictures, given the ignorance of the offenders to post and brag this stuff, it is uh, very possible, as we're seeing, to follow up and figure out who they are when you ask for help. So it's been refreshing, again, to see all those thousands of tips come in, even by people who are uh, in the same family as the individual, how they see how wrong this is. So that is a positive way to do it. And I salute the FBI and others for the effort they're putting into this. And can you tell me a little bit about the Capitol Police's intelligence unit? It seems like a big part of what the Capitol Police does. It protects lawmakers who are getting increasing threats to to bodily harm. It's officers protecting lawmakers on Capitol Hill, but also protecting them at home, back in the district. What percentage of work that the Capitol Police does entails this increased security assessments and enhancements for individual members of Congress who are increasingly getting threats to bodily harm. That's part of the growth of the uh, department over the years to expand the number of special agents that they have and the intelligence gathering apparatus and how they work with other agencies. So for instance, there's Capitol Police officers who are embedded Uh, with the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force. So they're getting, on a daily basis, working side by side with federal agents, the information needed in general about uh, uh, either international terrorists or homegrown terrorists. And then, as you mentioned, for instance, uh, the, the senators probably have about 450 offices around the United States just for those 100 uh, individuals. Uh, some are in federal buildings where they're protected by the Federal Protective Service. Other are in rental units. The uh, Senate Sergeant-at-Arms is responsible for the leases and the security of those buildings, working with the other agents or private security. So when a threat does come in, then the agents of the Capitol Police commence that investigation and work either with the FBI or the Secret Service or the local police as needed. So it really is a collaborative effort. The Capitol Police generally is not sending a lot of people out to the homes or offices of these people, but they would follow up with the staff home office, with the staff offices on the Hill, and make sure that the local or federal law enforcement are wired into those uh, cases. And ultimately, agents or officers of the Capitol Police would make presentations to the uh, U.S. Attorney here in the District of Columbia for uh, charges or participate in that at the local level. So they have a robust unit and they're, again, well hooked with the other agencies. I guess the reason I'm asking that question is because of the 1,600, and I think it's a little bit more sworn officers on Capitol Hill, what percentage is focused on that kind of work as opposed to 
walking the beat up on Capitol Hill. It's not necessarily what you see on the beat in Chicago PD. Perhaps it's a different type of flavor. And I was watching this hearing the other day that, that occurred, you know, about a year and a half ago where the Capitol Hill police, the, the Fraternal Order of Police representative, Gus, was just saying over the past few years, the training that a lot of the Capitol Police have been receiving in terms of preparing for civil disturbances has gone from three days, three years ago, to two days, to one day, and that they haven't been getting the kind of training that they need. Now, this could be a gripe from the union. I, I understand the, the, the push and pull between the union and Capitol Police leadership. However, there were some concerns on the part of the rank and file that they weren't getting the training they needed to be prepared for a situation that we saw unfold the other day. Well, that's a very packed question, so let me try to address a couple different things. Uh, Sorry. The Capitol Police is a multi-service organization, so it has a large uniform division. Some are on foot, some are on bikes, some are on motorcycles, and some are in uh, police vehicles. And part of that is to prevent problems from a standoff. What you don't want in a protective situation is exactly what we saw one week ago today, where you're fighting people up on the balconies in the doorway. So you try to increase standoff. That's why you see all the bollards place where they're at or the pop-ups in the street. So you can keep the offense as far away as possible. And that's what uh, people in the cars are doing. They're not out there because uh, we just want to issue uh, traffic tickets, but it's the interaction with people and patrolling the streets. So you see your offenders further away. That's what the bike officers are doing. And it's also more of a deterrence, it feels like. Well, for sure. I mean, ju just like you talk about at the airports or if anybody's ever been over to Europe, you have the people walking around before you come through screening because they're, they're looking at people. It, it, can you sense something that may be an indicator that they need further investigation? So they are doing that. And what I do know, there, there has been historically robust training on the uh, continuity of operations and continuity of government, where everybody practices, the staff and the media people up on, on their various areas and in the floor about how to shelter in place, how to evacuate, how to respond. And so I think part of the review that will be done, has that been robust enough to, uh, to have worked it out? But I'll tell you this, Molly, during my time in either of those two positions, I do not recall that we had a lot of drills where we would have been in hand-to-hand -hand combat in the corridors of the interior of the Capitol or in the chambers. We did not envision that the marauders could get into the building. Now that should be a criticism that you could do it. I, when I ran it, that's, that's not the type of threat we were looking at. And you have to evolve as the threat. You just don't want to practice for what happened yesterday. We had a whole other set of activities we wanted in defensive mechanisms so that they never would have got that close. We did not, or they would not have anticipated that 18,000 people would have been sparked to riot and come up and fight uh, at the direction of the president or his kid or uh, former Mayor Giuliani, and they'll and them be so riled up, those Americans, that they would want to hurt and attack that building. We didn't talk about that drill. We didn't practice that drill. And, and what that means then, uh, you might have, might you did not have the right equipment inside the building for the officers. It would have been down in their lockers. It would have been down in the police roll call room. But if you were standing on the House or Senate door or in the entrance and exits to the chamber, you would not have had quick access to a helmet or long baton or other protective gear. And we're going to have to uh, own up to that and look if that's where we need to go in the future. Or are there other mechanisms you can do to keep people further away from the building? And I think there are. Oh, and I want to follow up with that in a second, because I, I know about that Capitol Gateway. But I do want to follow up with the preparation question, because in this interview that the chief's son did with the Washington Post on January 10th, he said that he did request of the, the sergeant at arms, um, he did request that the D.C. National Guard be placed on standby in case he needed a quick backup, but he was essentially denied. And one of the reasons, and again, the sergeant at arms did not, neither Paul Irving or the Senate sergeant at arms did not comment for this article, so they did not respond to it. But one of the reasons Sun says he was given was because of the optics of formally declaring an emergency ahead of the demonstration. Now, putting on your Senate Sergeant-at-Arms hat, is that something 
you would consider the optics of it, even though there was going to be this massive protest in town. Do you know more about that decision not to have the National Guard on standby? Another packed question. Well, it, it, it is, but it's a, it's a fair question. It's on everybody's mind, and it will not be completely answered until that commission or groups honestly looks at that. I mean, not, frankly, not just some hearing by the House or the Senate. I think you need an independent group to force all the questions. So that, that's a good question. And it wouldn't surprise me as a former uh, Senate Sergeant of Arms, the question would have been about what assets do you need? And when the term optic is used singularly like that, that seems pretty de derisive in its work, in its own one word. I think what it's really talking about is um, what do you want the posture of the United States to be? And historically, you have not wanted armed combat type troops in and around the halls of the Capitol or on the steps or on the plaza. So somehow you're trying to have a mix of be defensive and be welcoming. The question is going to be, what intel were they talking about at that board meeting where apparently is listening to Steve, a great experienced leader, would have been saying, here's the threat and here's why I think I need this. And then it's not unlikely since there would have had to have been some permission if you're going to bring troops in, that would be a, a decision, a conversation that the board would have so you could go through the proper steps to do that. So assuming, as Steve has indicated, that happened, and if that was denied, then Steve has to look, or the chief, if it was me, you have to look at your other options. And given the uh, working relationship with those other departments or the Council of Governments, there could have been discussions about to the cap to the Metropolitan Police. Could you give me two or three platoons on standby that would have showed up in riot gear in buses waiting someplace in the Capitol grounds on either the House or Senate side to be able to move in if need be? And, uh, and you would have worked with either Fairfax County or Arlington County or the Metro Transit Police or the Arm, uh, Amtrak Police, all of them. How do I get enough people up there? And so what we don't know, what of those conversations would have been happening, because all of this does go back to the intelligence. And even in the past seven days, we've heard initially, both I think at Bouncing through the mayor's press conference and the head of the FBI, that they didn't have the intelligence. Then we have announcements from New York that the NYPD and the New York people did have intelligence. So there's confusion on that. And that has to be unpacked. That's why you need that commission, right? Well, I think not, absolutely, absolutely. To, you have to figure out what everybody knew and what the plan was. And was it a good plan? Was it well executed? And what was unfolding on that day? And again, no one in the United States has seen this type of an attack. So, so that's new. Just the same way no one had seen offenders from across the sea fly planes in the buildings. So one of the things we need to be better at is what is the next attack? And in the last two years, maybe the last four years during this administration, where there's been a lot more homegrown terrorists, we've got to look at it differently. And in talking about this group of the oversight board, essentially, that makes that decision as to whether or not it's a good idea to bring in the guard, ultimately your boss as, as the Senate Sergeant at Arms or your boss that when you were the Senate was Majority Leader Harry Reid at the time. When it comes to an issue like this, possibly calling in the National Guard, is that a conversation that you take to the Senate Majority Leader and the Speaker of the House, respectively? Well, you would take it to the board, and the, and the board uh, would help make that decision. If there was a, a disagreement within the board, uh, then the board members might go to the various leaders. And if, for instance, if the chief of police, if it was me up there, and I felt the threat was too much and the board members weren't giving me what I wanted, uh, then I could go and directly talk to the staff or the member if they would do that. So you can go around your boss. Um, and again, I don't know if Steve tried that or they wouldn't listen or couldn't get an appointment. Uh, you know, the, the bottom line, someone's, someone's going to get blamed for all this. And, and, and right now, much of it lies on the shoulders of uh, my former contemporaries, the Sergeant at Arms and the Chief. And everybody's gonna have to explain what they did. And um, if finally the board said you could not do this, 
then it fell to Steve to decide, can I get by with what I've given, been given, uh, or do I have workarounds? And that's a, that's a tough situation to be in uh, if and when your bosses say no. So even all the reported issues, as a chief son has done, about the attempts he was making at 1.30 and 2 o'clock, uh, well, then it, was, then it was nearly too late to get citizen soldiers equipped and mounted up on scene. And even if there was some doing traffic someplace else in the city, to get them up there and get them in the position and the equipment they needed. Do you think if President Trump immediately came out and made a statement um, at two o'clock when he saw when he saw that big rush of people rushing up the east front of the Capitol steps, if he went to the press room and got on camera, because there's a lot of cameras there at the White House press room, would that have made a difference? It's uh, speculative on my part, but again, I, I don't know how the word of that would have gotten to uh, 8,000 people coming up that mall. Now, they all had, as you see the pictures, Half of them seemed to have a combat type thing, baseball bats or other things they were using uh, in one hand, and the other half seemed to have uh, their mobile phones and, and uh, things like that. So uh, they could have got information, but it was almost too late. Listen, I don't mind piling on the idiocy of what the president and his son and other speakers did up there, and especially Giuliani, Giuliani who should have known better than to say go up and attack. So everybody's going to analyze what he did. I do believe, as others said, he lit the match. He set the fire. Then the problem was, were we able to control the fire? And again, I use that we effectively, um, and, and uh, we did not have enough personnel there. But Molly, if you don't mind, I do not think it should be lost. Well, listen, I'd like to make sure that we acknowledge what the police officers did do. Their primary responsibility, you've been up on that hill enough, is the protection of life in the process. You know, I got to say, it's incredible that only five people died, given the 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 size of that riotous mob um, and the number of members and senators who had to be on Capitol Hill because they're not always there. But on that day, they were there and none of them were hurt. That was incredible. And, and that and that's why those officers were fighting on the east and west side and on each of the three floors of the Capitol complex. That gave other agents and police, uh, Capitol police officers an opportunity to get the members, the staff, and let three legislative leaders, the vice president, uh, out of harm's way. Now, it was difficult, but they fulfilled their responsibility. And then with the help of others, they cleared the building and you were able to reclaim the, the House and Senate chamber, and they were allowed to do their business. That's successful work. And they fought as if the life of the members and the staff and democracy was on the line, and it was. And as you said, to the detriment uh, of an officer uh, who gave his life, and I think uh, uh, hastened the death of the other officer in addition to the offenders. So, you know, I feel bad that a 120-year-old uh, mirror was broken in the speaker's office uh, or furniture was broken, that is replaceable. Uh, and all of us wish it didn't happen. But by and large, those men and women, those Capitol Police, with assistance, thankfully, from other police departments and other federal agencies, were able to, to do the democratic business that's required. In the very beginning, they didn't have all that assistance, but they did have a lot of members located in two rooms, respectively. And they had to evacuate them somehow. And it's just incredible that they were able to do that, given the amount of people that were in the building. It also kind of helps that there's lots of nooks and crannies in the building. But um, as a former house page, <laughs> I can attest to, to finding good places to hide sometimes when you don't want to have to take a flag run. But seriously, I, on a serious note, that was incredible that, that all those members were safe and they weren't harmed and members of the press, largely safe unharmed. Now the PTSD, that's, that's a different matter and that's something that everybody's going to have to deal with, but at least they're alive to, to deal with it. And, um, and that much of that is owed to the quick thinking and, and the agile ability of that force to get those people to wrangle cats as it, is, as it were um, and, and get them into one place and keep them safe. And, and that you're right, that should not go without being stated. Absolutely. I'm wondering if when you were in, in your position at Senate Sergeant Arms and as the chief of police, what's the closest thing that you've ever faced 
that could be somewhat comparable to this. And I understand that you were there after 9-11 and, and I've been in those in the Capitol building when we had to evacuate and that those were just terrifying moments. But to that scale, what's a similar situation, the most comparable situation you can think of? On the Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., nothing was like that. Nothing, nothing at all. But the panic and death and destruction of 9-11 uh, or sending people over to the Pentagon. I mean, you've got a taste of that strategy, but uh, that was an unparalleled attack, uh, an unparalleled uh, fight uh, by the officers, and uh, it, it caught a lot of people off guard. Have you been talking to folks in the force? Have you actually talked to the former Sergeant at Arms and the former Chief Sund since this has happened? How are they doing? Uh, I have not talked to them, but I am told, as you might expect, uh, they're crushed and they and they feel that uh, um, that they're responsible, and that's what you would expect of people of that caliber. And like I say, I, I know Steve's son personally and professionally. He's a good man, and, and uh, I'm sure this is nearly killing him. I have talked with uh, a number of uh, both staff. Uh, and uh, officers, sergeants, lieutenants, inspectors, uh, and the acting uh, uh, chief up there. So they're all trying to uh, do several different things, do some recovery and support both the families of the injured and killed officers and the families of the injured officers, care for them while they're getting ready for these other security events, uh, being ready and beginning the process to help the FBI find the offenders and uh, regroup uh, as a department to make sure they're doing what they're doing. So there's a lot of things going on. And, and I know the officers have told me personally, they feel like they failed. So uh, one of the great things I've seen is on Facebook or any number of social media groups that other groups have been formed uh, to support the officers. There's been a group to support the families of the officers, uh, to do that to support uh, the staff. Uh, the police department, even under Steve's son on, on Thursday and Friday, when he probably technically had been relieved of duty, he was down there talking to the officers, going to the roll calls, trying to console them and inspire them, which tells you what type of person he is. Um, so uh, both Steve's son and the two sergeants at arms uh, who have long distinguished careers, unfortunately might be remembered uh, for the worst day in their life and the worst day in the life of the capital, but it shouldn't be the full measure of those people. And again, going back to that point, it was a terrible day, but it was also a day that the capital did not fall. Those people prevented it from falling. There was a breach of the Senate chamber, but the House chamber was not breached, and though neither chamber was breached with individual with senators in it. Well, that, that's the important thing. The, even the Senate chamber was not breached until the decision to evacuate was made. So the people in the Senate chamber and the House chamber, again, did what we would expect them to do until the evacuation uh, and, shut, and, and move everybody to another location. So they did that smartly. You know, it kind of leads to all these questions. Why didn't the officers start shooting people when they were coming up, to, when there was officers on the landing with rifles? That, that would have been inappropriate use of force. But I think many of these invaders came as close as they're ever going to come to uh, getting shot when a determination reasonably could have made for the use of uh, deadly force or force likely to cause death. The picture of the officer, uh, whether it was from the Capitol Police or DC Police, laying on the ground being beaten, or the photo of the uh, young officer caught in the doors where they tried to rip his mask off and ripped his mask off and just beating him on the head. I'm, I'm gonna tell you something, uh, those were putting those officers at the risk of losing their life, which changed the scenario about the, uh, the use of force. So number one, I think the message it sends to the world where we often see uh, heavy weapons being used on rioters, that wasn't done there. I think, I think the officers were as responsible as we could ever expect someone to be under those beatings to do everything they could to protect the members and the staff and democracy. Right. And I think that that's one thing that, you know, in talking to several Republican lawmakers who actually who, who witnessed it happening as well, 
they they were aghast. They said, we're supposed to be the party of law and order. Why in the heck is, is anybody who supports the president not obeying the police and, and in fact, beating them up? It's a very strange dynamic. It's just sort of upside down on Capitol Hill in that respect. I'm just wondering if that was went into kind of the thinking when the, the leadership saw that this protest was going to be taking place. People who had been calling for law and order and backing up the police and all summer long during these riots that were happening across the country, as a police chief, I'd think, oh, well, they're not going to come and, and take on us. They're there for law and order. But that's me. I haven't been in a command position. So I don't know if that goes into the thinking or not. Well, it's certainly a question that's going to be asked and has been asked. It's the whole black-white thing. Would uh, black marauders have been treated or, you know, black or people of color been treated differently than most of these uh, uh, white anarchists? I do not think that's the case because you have seen in enough place, uh, in enough cities, whether it's Portland, that probably comes to everybody's mind, that the uh, demonstrations and counter-demonstrations were kind of colorblind as to who offenders were. Uh, the police should use the level of force needed to defeat to defeat force, no matter who's doing it. Um, so the other thing is you were watching this unfold as you would have been up on the ellipse and then coming from that. And as you would have been watching people carrying baseball bats with flags wrapped around them or other things they had or individuals coming up who are dressed as if they were combat troops or had combat experience or for police experience, that would help trying to guide uh, what forces do we need. And I think that's what uh, uh, Chief Sun was trying to do when he was, uh, uh, according to the timeline he was talking about, was making calls for extra help. Well, moving forward, this is going to be, I mean, I've been up to Capitol Hill uh, a little bit since this happened, not inside the building. Again, as a former House page who had basically the run of the building and the campus, there's a big black fence that is surrounding the Capitol complex, Capitol proper, eight feet tall. There's a bunch of National Guard troops. There's also sort of stanchions, dividers that are lining the the other side of independence and constitution around the Senate and House office buildings. And it looks like a fortress. Moving forward, you know, this is something that you had been a proponent of, not necessarily this this in particular, but of the this Capitol Gateway. Tell me a little bit about the the fence that you had proposed in the past and how it was received then. Has anybody come back to you over the past few days and said, Hey, uh, Terry, can you dust off your Capitol Gateway plans? We might be moving forward with this. Well, I mean, as a security official, whether it's you're the chief or the sergeant at arms or the other staff you have, you're always trying to figure out uh, where your gaps are and your vulnerabilities. So again, after 9-11, when the uh, shift was to air attacks or improvised explosive device or uh, car bombs and everything else, that's when you saw a lot of the physical structures put in to try to thwart that. And uh, we did know that the members, uh, rightfully so, wanted to keep the Capitol as open as possible so people felt comfortable uh, with the visual of the democracy and they could interact. And so our job was, okay, now, now how are we going to prevent someone walking up to the skin of the place with a bomb or walking into the door as you did before 9-11 and you were screened somehow in the door where we in fact had two officers killed when the offender walked into the door, went up to the magnetometer and opened fire. So what you want is standoff. You want to interact with your offender further away from their target and from the members and the constitutional officer and all the continuity of government. That's what drove uh, the Capitol's Visitor Center. Enter in one area, be screened, and there's a large area that would take you some time to go through a lot of screening before you could ever get to a point of fatal danger to democracy and the leaders. Uh, but that is actually designed for most of the anticipation that people are peaceful. And even if you're a offender, it's designed so we could stop you at the gate hundreds of yards before you're at the Capitol. So the suggestion was to build what would be, if someone could visualize it for a second and not just shut their mind on this, a uh, fence of some dignity, uh, you know, a wrought iron fence, maybe the type that you might see around the Capitol, along with uh, support structures that would go every eight or 15 feet 
so that it's created the sight and sound vista. But the thing we're suggesting, unlike the White House fence, was entrances and exits plentiful so that if those checkpoints were manned 24-7, everybody could come on to the greater complex, but they would have gone through screening. So if you envision something like that in each of the corners of Constitution and First, uh, Constitution and First on either end, Independence, First and First or Second and Second, as well as some in the middle, or, you know, you could have four entrances on one side, four entrances on the other side, then two entrances on each end of that big square. You'd have complete access 24-7. If you wanted to go into the building, you'd still go in through the CVC, um, and that would have been a way to do it. Now, it wouldn't look as open it is. I don't think it would be oppressive. I do, I do think it would be a smart way to open up, open up the grounds. And we even suggested uh, in that, Molly, the rerouting of independence and constitution, which probably struck more terror in anybody's heart uh, than the fence. Uh, but that just struck terror in my heart. Well, we were talking about doing this over 50 or 60 years. It didn't have to be again tomorrow. And we had design engineers. We had a plan laid out where you could do some rerouting, buy a property, and, and green it and, and uh, dig if you had to. And some people are saying, oh, you could never dig. Well, we know with the proper amount of money and the proper engineers, you can do a lot of things. And you would have kept it open but safer. But you have to have a little vision on this. And when it was first talked about it back in uh, 2014, uh, it was widely criticized. And, and I understand that. Uh, so everybody has to decide how best to do it and how much money you want to spend. And so uh, I I, I do fault Congress a little bit, and you look each year, they're complaining, and, uh, complaining about how many officers there are and how, many, uh, how much overtime is, but at the same time, they want easy access to their car, to their parking, to the doors. They want to bring, bring their best friends in or around uh, magnetometers, so someone's going to pay the price, and two officers did. Now that every single lawmaker almost was I mean, experienced this riot, you know, in some capacity. So I'm wondering if that's changing their thinking a little bit on how the Capitol is protected. Um, have you heard anything from people you know up on Capitol Hill, whether there is interest in that? Because as it stands, the fence that they have around the Capitol right now, it is very imposing. Obviously, with, with the National Guard, that adds another layer of of kind of fortress, but under normal circumstances, quote unquote, normal circumstances, I wouldn't think that you would have that presence there. And I think that with those added entrances, that would be really important because as it stands right now with this big black fence, there's really no entrances except for the vehicle entrances to get onto the complex. Just hearing the fear of lawmakers for their safety, I don't think that that goes away overnight. Well, I don't think it does either. I have been contacted that some members were talking about introducing something, but maybe that's even premature until we unravel what happened. And I hate to sound almost partisan in this, but given the attack, given the fear they were in, it certainly didn't motivate a substantial amount of people to hold the president responsible for this. So I'm not going to get all joyful that suddenly uh, a lot of people up there are going to get religion and say, uh, um, let's see if we can defend the next threat because they were blaming people who weren't even involved in it. So it'll take some doing, it will take some money, it will take some time, but people need to decide and take responsibility uh, for what they want to do. So again, professional experts in how to design security can lay that out. And then the people who like to remember uh, history and architecture will discuss their side of it and the elected officials can make the final decision. And this is sort of a different tangent a little bit, just in terms of the force being prepared and up and ready. One thing I've noticed ever since COVID, since there have been much fewer members of staff on Capitol Hill, the presence of Capitol Hill police has also been reduced. The checkpoints that I was normally going through, I was in the Capitol maybe last Tuesday I was there, and I was doing some business the week before, but that's a little different because it was the end of the year. Even in October, 
there weren't as many Capitol Police manning checkpoints than I normally had to go through when all of the visitors are moving through the Capitol, which makes sense. But I'm wondering if the COVID restrictions that have been in place, has that impacted the readiness of police officers on Capitol Hill or um, the number who were able to be on Capitol Hill at one time? I'm not saying that that's an excuse. I'm just wondering if, if, if that plays any part in any of this. Well, COVID has played a part because it's uh, uh, attacked officers uh, on the force as it has across the, uh, again, the United States. I was just reading a document put out today by the Police Executive Research Forum talking to chiefs of various departments where you might have upwards of 10% of the officers not available because I either have COVID or they're quarantined or someone in the family has that. So I don't know what the uh, strength, what the impact has been day to day. Uh, and you're right, there would have been fewer officers maybe visible to you uh, because there's not as many entrances or, or uh, members up there. The, the key entrances that were opened for those who could be up there, I'm betting they were properly manned. Uh, so I, I appreciate your, the anecdotal perspective of this because, gosh, members and staffs are constantly saying that too. You have too many, you have too few, they don't have enough guns, they have too many guns. Uh, so that, that's kind of, a, kind of a constant battle. But in any event, I mean, a planned event, that's what goes into the chief's decision about whether you cancel days off or have people work 12-hour shifts or you don't allow people to have breaks or you bring other people in. So again, knowing the skill set of Chi Sun, which was a good skill set, he ran the Special Operations Division of the Metropolitan Police Department and is well versed in events that he would have been factoring in who would have been available or what the normal sick rate might have been. But again, we're not going to know all that until all the questions are asked and all the documents presented. And maybe that's where we can end this, just looking forward. You keep talking about an investigation and, and a commission, and I'm wondering, what does that look like? Does that look like, in your perspective, does that look like a 9-11 commission? Does that look like um, a joint law enforcement, a congressional commission? How, what do you think would be the most effective commission to look in and review what happened and make the right recommendations moving forward? What does that look like? Molly, the 9-11 commission may be one of the best examples of uh, an independent assessment. The police department is fully capable of doing an after action report. Uh, each of the entities could do that. The FBI, the Secret Service, the Department of Defense, every, uh, the Metropolitan Police Department, they'll all be doing after action. And you'll be doing that almost starting the next day when you're trying to think out, what, what, what do I have to worry about tomorrow that I didn't do today? But I think when you're gonna get uh, uh, so much crosstalk that we've had already, uh, about what intelligence was available and what people had. And you're talking about people reporting one thing in New York and people reporting another thing here and someone reporting something from Virginia. You know, that gets a little bit multi-jurisdictional. Uh, so an independent commission with the power to do that and, and, be, uh, and not be shy about pulling punches. Because, again, God love the Senate and the House. Uh, they don't like a lot of criticism. No, they don't. And, and they're very protective and uh, they, they've, they've gotten more uh, open and transparent, uh, but not where we are in other governmental and police agencies. So everybody has to be very honest and own up to, again, the good things, the bad things, the ugly things, the gap, and move forward rather than just make it an I gotcha. And on first blush, we're kind of in the I gotcha mode uh, by firing and removing uh, those three individuals. So the I gotcha has started. Uh, criticism is healthy. It's what we expect. It's what I would have expected. I said before, if I had been either the chief in that position that Steve was in, or either Paul or Mike as the sergeant of arms, I wouldn't be surprised if they were trying to hang me by the nape of the neck. That goes along with the authority and responsibility you have. I would expect that, but I'd want a, I'd want a fair uh, hearing in, in trial about that. Are you interested in serving on such a commission? Has anybody asked you to? No, I'm, I'm, I'm interested like uh, everybody to make sure we fix it and get it right. 
And there's a lot of good people who could do that. A lot of good people who could do that. So, um, you know, the, the only thing I or others who served might bring to something like that is maybe knowing the inside out of it. But then you could also see as uh, biased and uh, not very independent. And so I, I think uh, smart people will figure out how to have a good uh, assessment of all this. I have confidence in that. Excellent. Well, maybe we should end it there. But and but and thank you so much for talking to me, because I know that your insights will be very helpful to inquiring listeners who want to know how Capitol Police operates. Because one thing you did mention at the end there, you're right, the House and Senate, they don't like a lot of criticism and they aren't very open about sharing information. You know, even even police reports sometimes can be difficult for reporters to get. And I could, I could tell you some stories comparing one city's police department's FOIA experiences versus my experiences with the Capitol Police which I actually think is going to change because there was a provision in the, the the COVID package at the end of the year that requires more openness. But it's it's been tough covering the Capitol Police over the years. But I know that in my dealings with you as a reporter, you've always been very fair. And I really appreciate that. That's why I'm so glad that we were able to talk. Well, yeah, th- thank you for that. I mean, but I also didn't go on strike when I was the chief or the Senate Sergeant of Arms to say, we need to get this out. I, I abided by the rules that were in place, uh, but I know that no other city police departments, hardly any city police departments, can be less open than, than it is up there or less open just to the whole inner workings of that. And there's there's security reasons for that, and I don't want to downplay that. So I'll end it, too, by this way, that I, I'm going to guess and imagine you've got, got a lot of listeners who are very much involved in the Hill in the uh, that PTSD in the uh, – feeling of the officers and the staff as young and inexperienced as they are, many of them, or even uh, old and experienced, they're going to need um, support for some time to come. So for any of you who work in the Capitol or around the Capitol or the Library of Congress uh, or the uh, Supreme Court, my heart goes out to you and you got to take care of each other. Thanks. Thank you. A big thank you to Terrence Gaynor, former Capitol Police Chief and former Senate Sergeant-at-Arms for coming on the show. As we continue to learn more about the attack and next steps to stop any future assault, I hope the former chief will return to keep Article 1 listeners apprised of the situation. Congress is the first branch of government, and it must remain a co-equal one at that. Thank you for listening this week. Tony Mitri is our editor. Julian Soler produced the show. For any questions, comments, and suggestions, please message me on Twitter at Molly Hooper or at Article One Podcasts, or email me, molly at article1podcast.com. In the next few episodes, I plan to speak to individuals involved in the various responses to the January 6th attack, and again, how the Capitol complex and community intends to move forward and deal with the aftermath. But until then, I reserve the right to revise and extend my remarks.